Welcome to Family Science Days at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS. We're playing with the robot. Hello, my name is Now. I've got a magnet here, right? I'm very powerful. All right, we're going to chill this out a little bit. This is liquid nitrogen, 321 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. So this is chilly stuff. My name is David Willits. I'm the British Minister for Science and Universities. I'm in Chicago attending the world's largest scientific conference, the Conference of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the AAAS. There are over 8,000 people here, and it's a great opportunity for me to talk to as many people as possible about the science that we're doing in Britain, how great it is, and also to learn what's going on around the world and particularly to try to get more cooperation. We're very good already at cooperation, but trying to get even more cooperation between our scientists in the UK and scientists in the US and elsewhere. One of the things that I certainly hope to be pursuing all through my visit to Chicago is what I've called the eight great technologies, eight areas of technology where there are global opportunities, general purpose technologies which we are investing in, in addition to the core science budget, to the tune of £600 million. My first stop is here at the Argonne National Laboratory on the outskirts of Chicago. Welcome to Argonne. I'm Peter Littlewood. I'm Associate Lab Director of Physical Sciences and Engineering, which means that I'm in charge of about 800 or so scientists who do work on fundamental science at Argonne. Argonne as a whole actually has... 3,000 people working here and about 5,000 people coming to use our user facilities, many of whom come from the UK. What are we going to see? What do you want me to learn? Argonne is a big user facility, so we have lots of big toys for scientists to use, like a large synchrotron and a huge computer, and we're going to show you them both. We also do research in energy. Um, particularly in energy materials, and we'll be talking to you a lot about our programs in electrical storage and batteries, where we're trying to design a battery that will operate a car on a single charge for about 400 miles. Well, it is amazing how you travel thousands of miles to arrive in Chicago to an American national lab, and you find a Brit running it. It's fantastic. The eight great technologies are really organized first around big data and high-performance computing, then secondly around the life sciences, thirdly there's particularly energy and energy storage, and finally advanced materials. And I reckon that a lot of that is very relevant for what goes on here at Argonne. We have a lot of users here because when we have one of these big machines, what we're interested in doing is getting the world's hardest problems solved on them. I'm Pete Beckman, and I work at Argonne National Laboratories, and I'm responsible for exascale and supercomputer software as we look to the future. And we're standing in the machine room right now that houses Mira, our very large supercomputer. It's a big data cruncher, and uh, we use it to do computer simulations that are uh, look at climate modeling, what will happen to the Earth in 50 to 100 years. We use it to look at drug discovery and metagenomics, understanding how human genomes interact with future drugs. We use it to uh, explore new types of battery and battery technology. Hopefully we can move away from fossil fuels, and that means we need storage capacity. We need to be able to store power that we get from wind and solar in places. And what we do with Mira is we compute and simulate in order to find new ways, new discoveries in those science fields. I'm George Crabtree. I'm the director of the Joint Center for Energy Storage Research acronym Jay Caesar at Argonne National Lab. Transportation is 29% of the energy we use. Electricity is 40%. Both are waiting for a transformation. The transformation in transportation is let's have an electric car. 
don't have an electric car because the batteries aren't good enough. It doesn't really compete with a gasoline engine. Why do you want to do that? You want to replace foreign oil with domestic electricity. You want to reduce the carbon emissions, which you can do, and use less energy. And that's what the car will do. So wonderful vision, but you need to have the battery. The electricity we're in this country, going from coal to gas to wind and solar, I think every country is doing the same, we're a little farther along perhaps because we have so much shale gas, it's cheap, it's everywhere, and so gas is the natural replacement for coal. You could go one more step and replace gas with wind and solar. They are intermittent, so you need something to store big amounts of energy to be able to deploy those at, say, 20 or 30 percent. So it's unusual to find two energy sectors that are waiting for just one innovation to be transformed, and that's what we're doing. Our idea is to transform both of these things with high-performance, low-cost energy storage. Our mission, as we say, is 555. It means five times the energy density, one-fifth the cost, do it in five years. Right. Very aggressive goals. Because mm-hmm. you obviously you can't achieve something as ambitious as this by incremental improvements. You've got to do something fundamentally different. So, great question. If you look at lithium-ion technology, battery technology, it's wonderful. Best battery technology we've ever had. It gets better at Invented Oxford, I think, wasn't it? Uh, I'm sorry? Wasn't it invented in Oxford? Absolutely. Good enough. That's right. And 71. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting that in 91, it was uh, commercialized, 20-year span. We would love to shorten that time between conceptualization and commercialization. But if you've got a five-year time scale, isn't one of the constraints of such an, a tight time scale, are you going to have the time to try out all these radically different approaches? Don't you need more than five years? Well, what you really do is you do something which is the antithesis of university-based research, is you look at the problems, decide which are the hardest, and you do them first. And if it doesn't work, you don't bother with the easy stuff. The Volta style of inventing a battery was to look at the periodic table, understand a theoretical potential, and jump straight from that. Look at a couple different elements or a few elements, go straight from that to building a battery. So if you were looking at it as a linear progression of we need to test X amount of materials, you're right, we won't get there in five years. But instead, we want to dig deeper and deeper to understand how to move ions around, how to transport material across a barrier reproducibly and recyclably so you could charge and discharge. So it won't be a linear fashion. We're, we're growing the base of fundamental knowledge. So towards the end, the prototypes, we'll, we're prototyping now, but the victory will not be a linear progression of testing material X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F. And that does make a difference, in my opinion, from the Volta days. And Volta, we've been doing what Volta did for two, over 200 years. We don't know whether it will work. But the whole idea is to try something different. But you have to do everything at once. So, for example, one of the things I love is that they're building prototypes and also prototypes on the computer. So even if somebody thinks that this battery anode is going to be wonderful, well, okay, put it together with all of the other things and see if really is it manufacturable, how much will it cost, will it ever get you there? And some of these things which look great to a scientist after you've run them through your techno-economic models don't look so hard. One reason why I like this is that when we identified our eight great technologies, where Britain had historically made great advances and still had a comparative advantage, kind of energy and energy storage is one of them. Because as you said, the lithium-ion battery was a discovery in the UK. There it was commercialised mainly in Japan. Yes. And for us, with, you know, as we make these big investments in various forms of sustainable energy, intermittency is a big issue. Yeah. So we are looking at ways in which we can put more investment into battery work. 
So a major priority here, of course, you know, in the U.S. particular, we worry about engineering the grid. And if you want to be able to put renewable power onto the grid, you need a grid which is much more responsive and much smarter to be able to do that. The grid at the moment isn't very smart. It's designed so that the power flows only in one direction from large centralized power stations out to the consumers. And, of course, what we do is that when you uh, turn up your heating, then the power station has to produce more energy. If you have a distributed grid, if you put more power into the grid, then your neighbor next door gets their fridge blown up because the uh, system can't respond rapidly enough to the fluctuations on the power grid. So we have to be able to design a power grid that looks much more like the Internet than what it is now, which is just a set of wires that connect a power station to something that's plugged in on the other end. You might actually at some point be using your car to buffer the grid. If you have an electrical car, that becomes a source of energy at some point. You know, you, it sort of sits and you plug the car into the grid. Sometimes it takes energy in, sometimes it puts energy out. If you're going on you know, much longer timescales, you know, 12 hours, you may be moving energy across the grid from one side of the country to the other in order to be able to pump up water in some mountain. So there will be lots of different technologies which will appear on the grid, and we don't actually know what the mix is. And none of those technologies at the moment are really good enough to be as effective as we would like. So we work both on modeling those and also trying to improve the technologies themselves. I've also been given, as a reminder of my visit, here encased in glass, a small piece of graphite from the first nuclear reactor here in Chicago, December the 2nd, 1942. Hi, just to interrupt the party for a few minutes, on behalf of the UK Science and Innovation Network and everyone here at Northwestern University, our co-host today, it's my pleasure to introduce the Minister of State for Universities and Science, Minister David Willits. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's great to be here and it's great to see so many people working in synthetic biology, enjoying the products of successful fermentation. <laughs> it's great to be here to meet synthetic biologists working in this exciting technology. It's one of the eight great technologies, which I've identified as areas where Britain has got a comparative advantage and which are of global significance. They've been brought together by our Science Innovation Network, who work in embassies and consulates around the world and what they've done is they have been taking synthetic biologists from the UK to Boston to San Francisco and now here to Chicago to Northwestern University which is where we are and I've got with me here now Declan Bates who's co-director of the Warwick Center for Integrative Synthetic Biology he's come to Chicago to attend this meeting and we've got with us as well Josh now you are here at Northwestern University that's right I'm Josh Leonard why don't you give us and for me as a layman your definition of synthetic biology synthetic biology is an emerging technical discipline and what unites us is the goal to try to figure out how to make it possible to engineer biological systems like we engineer other more familiar systems like mechanical and electrical systems does that mean that you will literally be able to identify a slice of genetic code and cut it out from one place and put it somewhere else. Is that the heart of synthetic biology? I think the heart of the synthetic biology field at the moment is trying to answer your question. I believe we are able to do a lot more today than we could 10 years ago. We're getting better at it. We don't know exactly how to do it in every step, but it's the actual process of engineering these systems that lets us learn that. 
Declan, what is your definition of synthetic biology and how is it going to impact the real world? How are the people listening to this programme going to have their lives changed by synthetic biology? So I think one of the most exciting things about synthetic biology is that it has so much potential both from an industrial point of view and from a medical point of view. If you think about new forms of bioenergy or if you think about new forms of materials that could arise as a result of synthetic biology research, a lot of these things could have transformative consequences in, in a lot of different biotech industries. But then if you also look at what potential there is from a medical point of view where people are looking at developing new kinds of biosensors that can react to diseases or people are re-engineering the immune system to allow you to attack cancer cells. There are amazing potentialities in terms of combating different diseases as well. And I think synthetic biology is almost unique in having this dual potential to be transformative in, in both industrial and medical uh, sectors. Tell us about the work that you're doing here. My group really tries to figure out how to develop therapeutics that um, enable us to take what we understand from the clinic and build therapies that treat cancer, for example, by harnessing the immune system. And how does that relate, Declan, to what you're doing at Warwick? I'm a control engineer. I started out my research career designing flight control systems for Harrier jump jets. Somewhere along the line, I got waylaid by biology and moved into looking at, at how to model and design biological systems using the same kind of approaches that engineers use to design uh, aircraft, for example. And so what I'm interested in doing is trying to develop computational tools that can help people like Josh to do the kind of work that they do in a more efficient and easier manner by being able to simulate on a computer the types of systems that they're working with before they actually have to build them in the lab. And that gets to the heart of what, for me as a layman, synthetic biology is all about. It's taking engineering techniques, harnessing the power of standardization to create mechanisms that enable genetic code to be changed and new patterns of genetic code to be created. And one thing that which we can do in Britain, actually, is we have helped work with China and the US, learned societies from those three countries. If they can agree a common language and a common standard for these instructions, then it will be possible to have across the world a shared way of carrying out synthetic biology rather than each individual lab doing it in a different way. And that makes much more rapid advance possible. One of the things that's necessary to industrialise biology is to have this standardisation both of parts and systems but also of processes so that it allows different researchers in different labs in different countries to use the same standardised processes to develop different kinds of systems but basically always in the same way. And until we can do that, it's very hard to claim that biology will take its place as a true engineering science, which is really the goal of synthetic biology, to make biology engineerable in the same way that, that physical systems are. We don't really know how to engineer biology just yet. And a big part of what we're going to get out of these investments in training and these investments in research is learning how as engineers to go about doing the engineering of biological systems. So I think I just wanted to make it clear that there is a lot of merit in trying to figure out how to do the engineering. And there's a lot of learning to be done in that, in that process as well. And interacting like we are today, I think, is, is an essential component of making sure that we can, can do that. And one thing we're very aware of was the regulatory and moral framework. And one of the reasons why synthetic biology is quite strong in Britain is that we have got 
a very good regulatory framework. And as well as the scientists, we have moral philosophers who think about what are the limits to what can be done. And I think we cannot get disconnected from the values of the societies like Britain and the US, and the regulatory system ensures we don't. If I may, from the other end of the spectrum, rather than an engineer, a chemist doing synthetic biology, synthetic chemistry engaging engineering, engaging biology, I think synthetic biology has another component to it that is educational. You can begin to understand and design principles that will lead to a living organism. And you can start at an intuitive level educating high school kids and engaging them in science and thinking about science and thinking in an integrative way going beyond these disciplinary boundaries. Yes, and certainly one of the things that you can do with synthetic biology is create organisms that will produce products that are currently made by industrial or other processes. So, for example, I took to Brazil a company that's a spin-off from Imperial College in London that had created an organism by I mean, modifying it genetically that essentially ate rubbish and produced bioethanol. And in Brazil, they use a lot of bioethanol and they currently use sugarcane and agricultural products. Well, if instead they could take the rubbish that is coming out of their cities and through this organism create large amounts of bioethanol, that would be good for the environment and it would be a very efficient way of providing a fuel they use. We may well see in the future biological techniques used to do things that are currently done by other techniques. And I guess that partly goes back to what this poster is about. 60 years ago, the discovery of the structure of DNA, or to be precise, I guess we should now say 61 years ago. (laughs) But that great moment when Watson and Crick walked into the pub in Cambridge and announced to the bemused regulars that they had discovered the secret of life, which, of course, happens in pubs a lot. (laughs) But on this occasion, it was true. And from that, so much extraordinary science has followed and synthetic biology is the next development of that extraordinary discovery. Here I am in 1871 in Chicago. It feels a lot like Tech City in London. It's a place where it's got the real buzz of start-up businesses, high-tech entrepreneurs. I'm with Howard Tolman, who is the chief executive officer of 1871. First of all, Howard, tell us what the significance is of calling this place 1871. Well, in the city of Chicago, that's the year of the Chicago Fire. Following 1871 was this amazing period of rebirth and growth in the Chicago area because the fire had destroyed a significant portion of the entire city. Yeah, I guess for us in Europe, 1871 was the end of the great Franco-Prussian War, so the emergence of Bismarck's German Empire, and with Paris in revolt, with the Commune in Paris and civil war in Paris, and after that, Haussmann put through the great boulevard so they'd no longer have the medieval streets where uh, the populace could rebel. So it was a big, probably a big year in Europe as well. Yeah, and it's funny because not too many years after the Great Fire, we had the World's Fair here, the, you know, the Columbian Exposition. Speaking about Paris, one of the challenges was the Eiffel Tower had just been announced and it was the tallest structure in all of Europe or something. And so the architects in Chicago were trying to figure out how do you top that, you know, do you add... 11 feet to that or something. And they thought that that would be sort of difficult because then the next guy would add 10 feet over that. So instead they built the first Ferris wheel. 
which was a unique engineering feat, and it was really as popular an attraction for many, many years as the Eiffel Tower. And now here also, we're in one of the world's biggest office buildings, but it doesn't feel like an office building. It's got that relaxed Google-type feel. And tell us how you operate here and what kind of space you've got. Well, so this was definitely part of a much broader strategy on the part of the Merchandise Mart, the ownership of this building. It was owned for many, many years by the Kennedy family and just recently sold. And it was showrooms and warehousing space and convention and sort of conference space. The last few years in 1871 has really been the anchor for a rebirth to build these social areas. And we think of 1871 as a convening place to bring together all of the different components and parts of the tech community. And as you can see around you, we have about 50,000 square feet. Some is quiet space, some is private office space. We have not only about 250 companies here, but also all the major universities are represented here, a number of venture firms, incubators and accelerators, and uh, generally every evening educational events uh, throughout the day, different activities. Yeah, and what I like about this is it has absolutely got that buzz. You've got people with business ideas. Everyone you kind of think has got on their iPad a business plan, and there's someone else coming around who's a financier or a venture capitalist who might back that plan. But as well as that, there's mentoring, there's support. You're not left on your own. You can both have practical training in running a business. You're going to meet other people facing the same kind of problems you do. And we've got with us here a proper Chicago entrepreneur who's come all the way from Kent, Alex Griffiths. Tell us what you're doing, Alex. Social Crunch is an engagement platform that helps brands and publishers understand their audiences better. We're, We're really trying to unlock what makes people tick. And we're trying to capture information about how people behave in the real world, not just uh, how they behave online. So we're helping brands and publishers connect with their audiences at a deeper level. And what exactly is the kind of customer data that you collect? And is that data that all of us should worry about? Are you intruding on your privacy? Are you discovering things about us that you'd rather you didn't discover? Well, everything's completely optional, so no user is forced to answer any question. It's, everything is completely opt-in. On, in terms of it's privacy, yeah, everything's anonymized as well. So we're not collecting people's perfectly identical information and linking that with the answers. So we do have some interesting questions and uh, issues around privacy, but that's not an issue for us. We, we're basically working to help solve that problem. But when I get Spotify sending me some like, slightly clunky things... Mr. Willits, as you listen to music X, Y, and Z, you're like this, where I don't think they really quite understand what I'm about. You're going to do something a bit smarter. Well, I think it's, uh, it's quite a nascent industry. I think um, a lot of businesses would love to be able to customise content and advertising based on what people really want to receive. I don't know about you, but I'm quite bored of receiving ads that have no relevance to me whatsoever, and they're just a waste of money on behalf of the brand. So I think we're moving to a world where you're going to see much more customised messaging. And why are you doing it here? Why have you had to travel from Kent to Chicago to do this? I didn't move uh, specifically to start a business in Chicago. I originally uh, grew up in London, went to school in London and university in London. And uh, my wife and I had a choice of where to live. And having worked at the Board of Trade and, and spent a lot of time in Chicago, it's just a really great place to be. So we decided to make this our home. 
I actually ran a business from 2000 to 2007 in the UK, and I think that was a very different environment then compared to what it is now. I haven't been back for a few years, and I haven't been to Tech City and seen what they're up to, but I think back in the early days of the internet, back in 2000, it was, uh, it was pretty tough. So Chicago and other cities are making big dents in that, and uh, you know we've, we've been here for a while now and working with Techstars in 1871, and it's, it's, a, it's been a great thing for us. Well, it was this morning at City Hall and then talking to people in the mayor's office here in Chicago, and they're very clear that when they look back about what's been happening in America, Boston and Harvard and the Cambridge cluster, and then on the West Coast, Silicon Valley and Stanford, have kind of been where America has had the greatest buzz and the amount of startups. What they want to do is to see Chicago catching up and overtaking that. And I have to say, there's clearly a big effort going on. And Howard, it reminds me of what I've seen at Tech City. You've been to Tech City. How would you compare with what you're trying to achieve here with what's happening in Tech City? I've been there a couple of times. I think it really has uh, changed Shoreditch. The Google facility there is extraordinary. So it's very much the same feeling. I think one of the things in Tech City so far is nobody had the luxury of having a space of this dimension. And so you have in Tech City buildings and you certainly have companies that are there, but you don't have a single facility with hundreds and hundreds of businesses. And they do feed off of each other. It's really remarkable how common the issues are, how common the problems are. And when new technology ripples through the place, it's likely that 10 or 20 of the companies will use that in a week. You know, as Alex said to you, they'll observe something and then three days later they'll have it incorporated in what they're doing. And what's your, what's your biggest success so far? What is the company that's emerged from here that we're all going to hear about? We have had just recently our first graduation. So we think of it as a sort of a collective success. 26 companies, less than two years old, and a run rate on an annual aggregated revenue basis of almost $10 million. $30 million raised, 300 new jobs. So our business is really not about a single business. It's really about the creation of sustainable jobs and sustainable companies to really grow the city. And as you undoubtedly know, new job growth is not small companies. New job growth is new companies. And in those first two to five years, it's that growth spurt that's really creating all the new job growth, certainly in the United States. And there is indeed, you're right, there is a contrast with Tech City. I mean, Tech City has got some places where people gather, some clubs, some places where they meet up. But what you've brought in one place is what happens across the whole area of Shoreditch in Tech City. And here there's, there's some of the education you get at Ravensbourne, there's some of the atmosphere you get in the Google offices there, there's some of the stuff that happens in the clubs. But you've brought it together in one place, and it'd be fascinating to see how it develops. One of the biggest things I think that I've noticed in Chicago is really the access to capital. Raising money in the UK back in 2000 was, was really challenging. Obviously that was part of the post.com world, the bus world. One of the things I've noticed here in Chicago is there's a real appetite on the part of entrepreneurs who have already succeeded to come back and give back and also participate in new uh, investments. So I think that's a really important feature for all cities around the world. It is a great honor to be in the company of so many distinguished scientists here today. I'm confident that alongside the US, Britain is the best place in the world to do science. And that's why it's so important that we cooperate. The UK-US scientific partnership is one of the world's strongest Prime Minister Cameron and President Obama have agreed that science and higher education are the foundation stones of a 21st century economy and that we have a responsibility to further our global leadership roles in these essential fields. In a globalized world, 
It is as foolish to be parochial about research, to cling on to every clever inspirational researcher as proof of one's excellence, as it is to be insular about students who wish to study abroad. And of course, this exchange of researchers goes both ways. Indeed, we have the highest bilateral flow of researchers between the UK and the US, with over 23,000 moves in either direction between 1996 and 2011. One of our most prominent and charismatic scientists, the Nobel laureate Sir Paul Nurse, is a case in point. He left Britain to head up the Rockefeller University in New York and then returned to become president of the Royal Society. And I'm confident that such exchange of people and ideas can be good not just for the individuals involved, but for our countries. Thank you. Well, our programme here in Chicago is just about coming to an end, and I'm joined with the two fantastic members of my delegation. We've been working as a team, Professor Martin Polyakov of the University of Nottingham, also the Foreign Secretary of the Royal Society, and Professor Mary Bounds, who is from the University of Edinburgh. Martin... You've done a lot of international work for the Royal Society. What have you learned from coming to the conference this week? I think it's been really great fun. I've never been on a trip quite like this. And it's really exciting to see you interacting with the scientific public. And at the same time, I think that I've met all sorts of people that I'd never met before. I've even been accosted by a few YouTube fans. (laughs) And... I think that perhaps what I've learnt is that the UK science is really making a big impression here in the States and that the eight great technologies are going down very well, though perhaps I see them more as a continuum rather than eight separate divisions. And sometimes I see them working together in a way that perhaps you can't easily put in a speech. Now, Mary, it's great that you've been here, and I know Edinburgh has got really strong connections already to the US. Has it been useful for you? What have you got out of the trip? Well, it's really useful for me to get access to and talk to some of the leading funders, to some of the best universities, and to some of the businesses and research labs which are really great for collaborations. So we already have collaborations with a number of them, and I can see many more collaborations as a result of this. The question is that I always wrestle with is this. Will these kind of collaborations all just happen organically, or do visits like this add anything? Do they increase collaboration on top of what would have happened anyway? I certainly hope so, otherwise there's not much value in doing them. So I think that having you there saying that the UK government is behind collaborations is extremely valuable for the universities when they want to make those connections. I have to say that some of them will require additional funding. Well, I never have a conversation with a scientist where that point isn't delicately made at some point, Mary, and I quite understand. Martin, what do you think we can get out of this it's additional to what would have happened anyway? I think that, first of all, it's very good for Mary and me to have been with you to meet so many people because then we can go back and spread the message among our colleagues not just in our own universities but I think nationally and also through the network of universities Universitas 21 which includes both Edinburgh and Nottingham but I think also we can tell everybody in these straitened times of your enthusiasm for UK science 
which I think is extremely important as a message both to the Americans and also to scientists at home because everybody is suffering from financial restrictions but at least to know that you sympathise is a first step. What I found about the eight great technologies is you're right, they're a kind of simplification, but they really do give the Americans something to latch on to and something which persuades them that as well as doing great upstream blue skies research, we're also willing to support the technologies that apply it. How much further can we push that agenda of the eight great technologies, would you say, Mary? Well, I think that there's huge potential there because there's so much still to find out. We really have to do things about data. The potential for regenerative medicine and stem cell technologies is huge for life expectancies and for disease. So there's huge possibilities if we can get it right. But I don't think we can get it right just by working with the UK alone. I think it's got to be an international effort. And obviously Canada and the USA are going to be some of our closest allies. I think that it's very good that we are engaging America. And we mustn't forget that we've also been engaging Canada. And I think the opportunities in Canada are also very good. And together... I think if we broaden this, and we did have some discussions about bringing in Australia as well, the Royal Society is having a Commonwealth Science Conference in November. So we need to broaden this out because the challenges facing us are global. And I think that the eight great technologies are really going to contribute to addressing those challenges and to keep the UK in the leading position that we want. I think, Martin, that is a great point on which to end. I'm so grateful to you and Mary. It's been a really valuable visit. I've learned a lot and I'm confident that we are going to get more American investment in Britain and more Anglo-American collaboration and Canadian as well as a result of this visit.